1: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a group of independent, climate-engaged podcasters. I'm Mark, publisher of the Climactic Collective, here to introduce today's episode. This one is from The Overview Effect with James Perrin. One of the newer shows to join the collective. James specializes in honest, engaging conversations with amazing people, and today's episode is no exception. The bulk of James' episodes are recorded in person, beautifully, either in the homes of his guests or occasionally in vans, but in this case, James traveled states for this episode. Traveling south from his home base in the New South Wales Northern Rivers, it was very worthwhile. And you're about to hear why. Get more of the overview effect from climactic.fm and from the links in the show notes. Hello,
0: and welcome, or welcome back to returned listeners, to the overview effect with James Perrin, the podcast about taking a big picture perspective on all things environment, nature, humanity, and community. I'm your host, James Perrin and I have something really special to share today. I'd like to start by acknowledging that this episode was recorded on Takiner land and I'd like to pay respects to the Takiner people and all First Nations people of Lutruwina which is just a beautiful place. I've been here in Tassie for the last 5 days and if you've been listening to recent episodes or following me on social media, you'll know that I was running in the Tekina Ultra Marathon. This is a 51 kilometre trail through the pristine Tarkine rainforest, the largest temperate rainforest in Australia, and it was amazing. Brutal. The run was absolutely brutal. The course was super technical, lots of steep hills. Lots of over and unders of fallen trees, bush bashing, heaps of rocks, heaps of mud, four-wheel drive tracks we had to run through, river crossings. It was something else, but oh my gosh, it was so incredible, and I'm so grateful to have experienced it, and I highly recommend anyone listening to come and do the run next year. Not just because of the spectacular running experience, though, because this was all for a really special cause. We were running to raise awareness and funds for the Bob Brown Foundation to protect this amazing place, which is every day under threat of logging and mining. And as a community of about 120 runners... We've raised just over $180,000, which is awesome. So thank you so much to everyone who has donated so far. The link is still live and active in my Instagram bio if you want to donate more, especially perhaps after listening to this episode. But thank you so much for everyone who has contributed. The team and volunteers at the Bob Brown Foundation are really amazing. They're so special. Their passion and the community that they've built here is incredible, and I had the absolute pleasure of spending the night before the race, the dinner after the race with them, but the day after the race, I went into the Forest Defenders Camp and spent the day there meeting many of them, learning about their frontline actions and seeing the devastation that they're trying to stop, and this is what I'm sharing with you today. So I have two guests today, one of them is Scott Jordan, who is the Tekina Campaign Lead, and we sat down in the rainforest at the defenders' camp, and he will take you through all of the details about what the forestry activities are doing to the landscape and its environmental impacts. He'll talk about the social, political situation around it, the economics, or I should say, the lack of economics of the situation, and how this campaign is at the core of politics in the whole country. Most importantly. He shares what you can do to help the fight, and this is really important because it's not just a local issue. In fact, people outside Tassie have a really key role to play in this fight, so please listen to what Scott has to say. But first, someone to set the scene, someone to tell us about how special the Tarkon is, and to paint the picture of the destructive societal mentality that is leading to these sorts of activities in the first place. He's someone who has fought many environmental campaigns over the last few decades. He is really the grandfather of the environmental movement in Australia. He led the successful blockade in the Franklin River in the 80s. He helped establish both the Wilderness Society and Bush Heritage Australia. He co-founded the world's first Greens political party, then held seats in various state and federal houses. He really needs no other introduction. I'm talking about a very special human, none other than the man himself, Dr. Bob Brown. Thanks so much, by the way, for not just doing this, but for your, your lifetime of work. Honestly, it's really um, heartwarming, and I'm, I'm so, so very grateful for everything that you've done, especially yeah. after reading your memoirs as well. Oh, Thank
2: you, James. I've been uh, very fortunate. You know, life can be tough at times, but in my case, it's got better as it's gone on, and I've never been happier. Here I am at 76, and being here um, at Waratah in the heart of the Tarkine in remote Tasmania with 100 people going to run marathons tomorrow through that forest to help save it that's just so um, uplifting and fantastic Mm. and save it we will not yet but we will we'll get there
0: we will absolutely and I want to I want to ask you a little bit more about the Tarkine and its importance but firstly I want to ask you if I can for a personal story so the, the the podcast the premise of my show is called The Overview Effect which is the name given to this experience that astronauts have where they first shoot up into space and from space they look back on our Earth and they see our world as a whole and without any borders, without you know, everything interconnected and they describe it as this profound sense of connection to nature and they have this paradigm shift and a very emotional sense of connection and many of them come back to Earth changed um, Permanently. Yes. And I wanted to ask you if you've had a similar experience or moments that has really shaped your view
2: of our world. Well, look, I haven't been into space, uh, and I was a young medical intern at uh, the Canberra Hospital in 1969 when uh, the people first trod on the moon. And I remember coming away from intensive care or wherever and had a break and, and watched part of that. But to me this planet's been fascinating ever since I can remember and mm. the, the fact that it is just the, one, the only one in the universe so far as we yet know that has life and love and laughter and, and this uh, extraordinary, you know, it, it fascinates me that here we are talking to each other and we're intelligent beings and that potential was wrapped in the Big Bang Thirteen point eight billion years ago and mm. and we know that because here we are doing it <laughs> uh, and i 'm just've uh, always been fascinated by uh, the the sheer uh, inability of us to comprehend what it is, but then uh, the the fascination with learning more, and as we go, we are learning more. And I want this to go on, you know, this human joyride in the universe, which is really a way of the universe thinking about itself to go on into mm-hmm. the future. And, and um, basically why I've become, uh, from being a young doctor to becoming a environmentalist, because uh, it, uh, the health of the biosphere, which sustains us mm-hmm. as individuals and as this now massive mammal herd of 8.5... No, 8 billion. Mm. Uh, it'll go on to maybe 11 billion mm. this century, um, consuming the planet beyond its ability already to replenish. Uh, it is it's it is fascinating to me, and yet I don't run into anybody, well, hardly anybody uh, in my lifetime who doesn't want it to go well. Mm. But we're making a mess of it. And so that... Idea of the looking back at this one unified planet, uh, it's the only great concept we can have of ourselves. And we either sink or we swim. You know, we'll go to disaster, uh, all of us, or we'll mm. make it into the future. And I'm very much a Unitarian in that sense that we're all in this together, and uh, the divisions which we set in our society. They take nearly all our time and, and yes. effort at the moment. Yes. Um, how to get beyond that without a catastrophe prompting us into it or making things worse is, is the fascinating question of the moment. Mm. I love how you talked about your reflection as the
0: universe thinking about itself. I just That's a beautiful way of putting it. I do want to ask you specifically about the Takina. I wonder if you can quickly just paint the picture for us as to what makes it so special and what are the issues that your foundation and that everyone here are fighting against to try to protect it.
2: Yes, James. Well, Takina, the, uh, the Tarkine, is a half million hectares of wild country in the northwest corner of Tasmania. So if you can. Visualise the heart-shaped island of Tasmania, the smallest state in Australia, but off to the south. Um, Tarkina's up in that northwest corner. It's 7% of Tasmania. And it's set uh, in quite extraordinary... uh, It's in quite extraordinary natural condition, but it's under all sorts of threats. It's got one of the richest Aboriginal heritages. The Aboriginal people here, as elsewhere, were dispossessed forcibly, the Tarkina people, and and where we are, we're inland from the coast, uh, the Tomegini people were dispossessed within 30 years of the Europeans arriving here, even though mm-hmm. they were cordial towards the European. And they were, they were a big, robust people. There. You mm-hmm. know, the warriors that encountered the first Europeans to land on the Tarkhina coast here were six feet tall, and... Um, Mm. And yet they uh, were accommodating. But that's not how things turned mm. out. So here we are back here with two th- missions. One is to protect Tarkina, which is, includes the biggest temperate rainforest in Australia. It's as big as the Daintree Tropical Rainforest up there in Queensland, which has got World Heritage wow. status. And this one doesn't but should have. And mm. it's full. That forest is full. It's, it's uh, full of... Wildlife and a lot of it's extraordinarily rare. For example, Astacopsis gouldi, which is a freshwater crayfish uh, in the streams of the Tarkine flowing to the west coast and north coast of Tasmania, it's the largest invertebrate, that means species without a backbone, in any rivers in the world. It's the no. largest freshwater crayfish in the world. Now, if it was in the Nile or the Amazon, or the Mississippi, we'd all know about it. Yeah. But it's here. And these creatures grow to a metre in length and six kilograms in weight, and they're fabulous. Wow. Uh, Blue-shelled lobsters, if you like, and they're being grossly threatened by mining and logging because they need the little pebbles, uh, it takes them seven years to get out of infancy and they hide in the little pebbles. Well, you put mud into that river and it clogs up the pebbles, they've got nowhere to go and they get eaten by everything. Mm. So uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big task we've got here. And there's Tasmanian devils, there's quolls, both tiger quolls and, and eastern native quolls, uh, there's a giant wedge-tail, Tasmanian wedge-tailed eagle, which has been recorded with wingspan. It's bigger than the mainland one. Wingspans up to three metres across. Wow. So hold both your arms out, and then it's another arm's length again. Wow. Uh, the only w- pure white raptor that is eagle-like bird on Earth, which is the white goshawk. goshawk it's found girl. elsewhere in Tasmania, but this is its stronghold. Mm. Uh, masked owls headed for extinction. The swift parrots come through. Uh, he and, and indeed the rarest uh, parrot that we have, the other migratory parrot to Tasmania, and the two of the only the only migratory par- parrots in the world, come between the mainland and Tasmania, is the orange-bellied parrot, and it uses the Tarkine as a mid-feeding ground on its way down to the southwest of Tasmania each year, and it's down to less than a hundred in, uh, wow. and um, we're trying very hard to save that no, the so many good scientists are. So here we've got a cornucopia of nature, stunningly beautiful, waterfalls, lovely little rivers, magnificent ferneries. At this time of the autumn, the, we're about to see, after the next rainfall, one of the magnific- most magnificent display of fungi, all colours <laughs> and shapes and sizes on the forest floor and so on. Mm. and uh, it's just wonderful to be part of saying to the miners who have mining leases over 95% of it and the loggers who are flattening and incinerating, and I mean bombing with napalm, these forests, uh, so that they won't grow back but they can put in their single species. Being able to stand up to that in our time is a great privilege because other people won't be able to come back and undo that Mm. if we don't protect it. So we want two things. Firstly, to protect it. It should be added to the World Heritage Area because Cradle Mountain, which is in the World Heritage Area, is just east of here. And secondly, is to return it to the Aboriginal community uh, in in Tasmania. It's public land. Nobody in, nobody's private land is being threatened. Mm. And um, we're on our way. Mm. What do you see as
0: the... I guess we're here, let's say all of that happens... Let's say we we are able to World Heritage protect Tikana and hand it back to Aboriginal custodianship. That's one example of one cause that we could potentially fight and protect. But I keep coming back to what I read in Optimism, your memoir recently, your chapter about Big M materialism. You know that that religion, the new yes, religion, yes, and absolutely. Is that that seems to be the cause of all of these symptoms? Mm. If I were to speak in a medical term. Mm. And how do, we, how do we address that? Because I feel like that, if we get to the core of that and change our societal mentality, all of these things like deforestation, climate change, etc., will
2: be almost superfluous. Well, first of all, we have to understand the situation we're in, which is that um, our 8 billion people are already using 170% of the Earth's living renewable resources that is, we're using nearly double what the, what the earth can supply or does supply, which is available. And that means every morning we wake up to fewer forests, fewer fisheries, fewer fellow species, more mouths to feed, but less land to grow food and certainly less wilderness and, and wildness. And it's up to us to decide whether... We, and that's all fostered by a growth economy, And you know, um, you run into a non-green politician who says, we've got to do something about uh, population. You're running into a rarity. Instead of that, in this century, in this last 20 years, we've had a federal government advocating bonuses for people. And and there's a big worry at the moment that because immigration's fallen due to COVID, that we've got to produce more Australians. There's going to be some incentive to have people make more babies. Now, that's to feed... That's not so that you can love and nurture little ones. That's to feed a growth economy mm. so that it will be more people to consume. That's why China's recently reversed its, its one uh, baby per couple policy to open it up to two or more because uh, materialism, capital M materialism, that is consuming more stuff, is the religion of the age. It's, glo- it's global... And it's subservient to the great God, capital G, growth. And I don't know of a government yet on the planet that isn't at the, co- at the core of its economic policy, and this is what governments stand or fall on, wanting growth. So let's have a 3% growth in the consumption of the planet. Already we're consuming twice its living resources it can replace per annum. And the rest of the world catch up with us in Australia at our consumption rate and you are going to see a 300% growth on what we're consuming now by the end of this century. That's a worse problem than the actual numbers of people. Mm. Uh, And your question was, how do we turn this around? Well, by talking about it first Mm. up, but by not voting for the parties that are making the problem worse. Mm. At the last national election in Australia, 90% of people voted for parties that want more coal mines like the Adani mine, more gas fracking, that's methane into the atmosphere, more oil wells uh, and uh, more logging of forests which the United Nations tells us and it's as plain as the light and the nose in front of our faces is the best way of keeping carbon from going into the atmosphere is to keep the great old forest instead of burning them and, and having that all go up into the atmosphere. Well, we as a nation, 90% voted for more destruction, mm. not saving. So uh, there's something fundamentally wrong there. One of the problems, of course, is that advertising tells us to get more stuff. And we've got, we've got media, out, uh, which is uh, largely, not all, but largely uh, Climate Skeptic has been... Uh, uh, and uh, sees environmentalists as the corporations uh, who are making the biggest mess of the planet want them to see us as, um, in some way or other, obstructive. Mm. Whereas, in fact, we're not. We're opening the door to a new future. Yes. And it's them who have set their... uh, You know, they've set their all in the way of security for today's kids. Current projections... Today's children, now at school, by the time they're my age, will have at least 20% of their gross national income just dealing with the impacts of climate change. They're going to be poorer, they're going to be unhealthier and they're going to be far more secure, insecure. Now, people don't want that. Mm. But people vote for it. And there's the dilemma. And I, I don't, I'm not one of those who says it's all the politician's fault. Uh, we the people... Run a democracy, yeah. and we've got to vote differently, and we've got to put the environment up the ladder of importance instead of just what's going to be the best tax break or the biggest handout by which of the big part old big parties supporting more coal mines is going to give us at the next election. I note just last week I read in one of the Murdoch newspapers that the Christian Democrats and Angela Merkel's party is going down, down, down in the polls uh, in two state elections last week, and um, gee. Oh, that's interesting. So I decided as there was nothing in the newspaper, well, somebody must be going up in the polls, I'd go and look elsewhere. It's the Greens. they mm. won state government in one of those uh, very highly populated German states, and they're in balance of power in the other. Not re- deliberately cut out of the reporting. And, wow. and you see um, the media is the message, as Marshall McLuhan put it, and uh, we, we have to demand a greater honesty in that portrayal and uh, in these days of, um, you know, so much um, information going through the uh, cyberspace uh, and no control on it, really. It, it's, it's a very difficult world we live in. But people are good-hearted... Individuals want the best outcome for the, themselves and their children, and we're uh, b- badly in need of leaders who are going to come forward. and, and I think uh, just Ardern, for example, in in New Zealand, is showing a lot of the thoughtfulness that's missing elsewhere in mm. the world run by Putin and uh, Donald Trumps of the uh, you know yeah. of the world but it's in the hands of we the people and it starts with how we vote and then it starts it moves next to what we support and what we tell our politicians how we want and on high on my agenda there is well start by protecting the dark iron
0: mm. wonderful bob thank you so much again not just for your time but again from the absolute depths of my heart for a lifetime of work it, it's massively inspired me and i'm just so grateful for everything you've done and that i've had the chance to sit here and talk to you about well, it today. thank
2: you james and um from where i sit you know life's a moving footway and i'm about to step off at the other end we don't know when but that'll come up but it's wonderful to see bright eyed young people concerned about the future and thinking about how we can change this and get ourselves back on track, stepping on to the start of that footway. So <laughs> that, that, that makes me uh, feel optimistic, uh, very carefully, but very determinedly optimistic about the future. Mm. Thank you. Wonderful, Bob. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Well, thanks. thanks again, mate, for doing this. I really appreciate it. No worries. So, Scott Jordan... Thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. Glad to be with it. So you are the Takina Tarkine campaign manager,
3: is that right? Yeah, I'm the Tarkine campaigner with Bob Brown Foundation.
0: Yeah, awesome. And we're here in the Forest Defenders camp, um, and I've had the amazing pleasure of being shown around and spending the day with, with you guys, and it's incredible learning and hearing about what you're doing. So I'd love if you can help... Um, tell that story for the listeners, and maybe just starting with painting the picture a little bit around um, why are you guys here? You know, what are the forestry companies doing and what are the practices that you're trying to stop?
3: Well, in in this particular situation, uh, last year in February, uh, loggers turned up here and they commenced clear-felling this beautiful bit of ancient rainforest. And so um, our crew turned up They'd been in four days, and so they'd cleared about five hectares in that four days, and and so you're talking an area two and a half times the size of the Melbourne Cricket Ground wow. in that two and a half days, and so we, uh, sorry, in that four days, and so we've arrived. Our folk have have locked onto those machines. They've put up tree sets. They've done what they can to immobilise that operation and prevent it from from logging. And after four days, the logging company decided to retreat and take their machines and go. And so we successfully held this last year. Um, we learned that this year they were planning to come back in and finish the job, so they wanted to get another um, 35 hectares um, to complete this coop. Then there's another six coops further down the road that it's accessed through this coop. And so we arrived here on the 28th of December and today's day 85 and we've we've had people over 250 volunteers in that time in this forest, holding this space, preventing that logging from happening.
1: Mm. Building on the
3: work we've done in other coops over the last five years that have prevented the logging of, of hundreds of hectares of forest across the north of the Tarkine.
0: mm Amazing, amazing. And so a coop, for anyone who's not familiar, is what, 100 or so hectares or is a zoned area for, um, it for logging? It can vary
3: quite a bit. In in the Tarkine area, we're talking a coop can be anything from 15 hectares through to 45. is yep. is normally the size in here because of the terrain. But in other parts of the state, coops can be anything up to 120 wow. hectares. And
0: what are the – so these forestry companies, they're coming in – they're not just coming in and taking a couple of trees. Can you just – tell the listeners a bit about what they're doing to the landscape and not just after they bulldoze everything but then what do they do with the, the
3: burning afterwards? Yeah well they're coming in, they, they clear fell this area, um, you know you've seen it today, they call it selective logging but it's a, it's a wasteland mm. um, the few trees that they've left standing seem to be what they've selected is what gets to stay and they'll all be lost when the area gets burned, and so what we're seeing is, is effectively this clear felling operation, which is then followed by a high intensity burn um, of a napalm type gel that's dropped either from a helicopter or from a handheld flame torch into these areas. And they burn it, which effectively sterilizes the, the um, seed that's in the ground from the myrtles, the sassafras, the celery tops, the blackwoods that, that don't like fire. Um, And most rainforest species don't deal with fire very well, and the the wet environment means they very rarely have to deal with it. Mm. But the eucalypt species uh, respond really well to fire, and so what they're doing is is effectively terraforming this landscape. They're removing the opportunity for rainforest species to recolonise, and they're maximising the opportunity for fast-growing eucalypts to um, take over this space. They'll then fly over the area and they'll drop a single species of eucalypt, in this case, Eucalyptus obliqua, and they'll effectively create a, a plantation and everything but name. It's a single species, it's, it's, um, they've sterilised everything else, and it's apart from having the normal rose you'd see in a plantation, it has every other characteristic of a plantation.
0: And they do that because the eucalypt grows much more quickly, and then they can harvest that again. In a shorter amount of time. That's right.
3: This right. this rainforest would need a thousand years to return to pure rainforest and to have mature rainforest trees. They're able to log a a eucalypt forest will grow much faster, and they can they can be logging it. So once we lose these rainforests in here, they're not ever allowed to return.
0: Mm. And well, one of the other things that really that I really surprised me today was learning the the definition quote unquote definition if you want to call it that of old growth or what is classified as old growth versus new growth um can you tell us a little bit about how that plays out and i guess creates a bit of confusion out there
3: it is it's it's a really misunderstood term and and if i was to talk to the average person on the street about old growth forests, they they will assume i mean forest that hasn't been harvested and, and that, that's a reasonable assumption for me would have. That's what I would think it would mean. But unfortunately, in the forest industry, it doesn't just mean whether or not that area's been cut. Uh, areas that have been impacted by fire or by other disturbance, um, including disturbances that happened before White Settlement, um, are enough to get those areas listed as regrowth forests. It has more to do with the type of forest that's re-emerging and at the stage that it's at, rather than whether or not it's been cut. And so many forests that we walk into that are clearly ancient forests, um, but if they've got a eucalypt overstory, which shows they've had a fire in the last 700 years, um, that, that may not meet their criteria for old growth. And so the public ends up very confused about what it is and what it isn't and and so in large part we've stopped using those terms mm. in our campaign and we refer to native forests because the reality for us is there's no place for any native forest logging anymore in a in a climate constrained world.
0: Mm. And some of these practices clearing the this what they're classifying as new growth um is actually being certified as Sustainable in some, under some banners, is that right?
3: Yeah. Look, we have have a global standard, and and while it's not perfect, it's the best standard we've got in terms of um, protecting forests and and having forest practices that are um, held to some scrutiny. So the Forest Stewardship Council has this global standard or series of standards they apply. In Australia and in some other places around the world, governments in industry have got together to bypass the requirements of that standard and create their own and so in australia we've had the australian forestry standard produced which is effectively business as usual and will give you a stamp and so wow. um it's being promoted in the market you may see a, a mark on timber being um sold in your local hardware store and it's got a mark that says responsible wood um what they're calling responsible wood is exactly what we're seeing out here it's this destruction it's the firebombing it's the terraforming of the landscapes it's the loss of all of that habitat it's anything but responsible it's simply um spin and government and industry um trying to bypass using the the more far more stringent and meaningful Forest Stewardship Council certification
0: Mm. Oh, okay it's devastating to hear that um but where, once they do clear these forests, what
3: are they doing with it? Well, unfortunately, very little of it is ending up as a sawn timber product. Um, we're, we're led to believe by the rhetoric that it's all about fine architecture and it's about beautiful coffee tables and, and craftsmen um, violins and, and all of these things. The, the harsh reality of it is that 65% of what will be cut down of this forest um, won't be straight enough to even go on a lock truck. Mm -hmm. Um, These are forests that are growing um, in the way they need to to survive in a rainforest. And so a lot of the time that means they're they're twisted, they've got a lot of character, they're beautiful to look at, (laughs) not much good in a timber mill. Um, And so 65% of it will be burnt on the ground as waste. Of what leaves here on a log truck, around 85% of that will go directly to the wood chip mill. And, And that timber, that chip, Will end up being exported to China and um, used in either toilet paper packaging or um, now we're seeing an emerging um, that it's being burnt for electricity. And so it's
0: actually this forest that we're sitting in right now is becoming toilet paper, which is this ancient, beautiful, amazing. It's either becoming toilet paper or being burnt.
3: That's it. That's largely what's happening. Oh my God. Um, and so it's, it's it's a tragedy. Around 10% of it will end up at the veneer mill of Taran, which is the notorious Malaysian um, logging company who have, have done some horrid things in um, Malaysia and um, particularly in the Sarawak province. They're linked to the ruling um, governor of Malaysia through some various family structures. And... And there's some quite serious human rights abuses that have been committed as part of that that regime and their their logging practices. Mm. They're tied up in the palm oil businesses and they're tied up in in those logging um, of of both um, habitat for orangutan, but also um, areas where people are still living tribally and being displaced by the actions of Taran. Um, our company unfortunately went to these guys and, and the government offered them uh, money to come and establish themselves in Australia. So when reputable companies wouldn't buy a wood chip from these forests, we scraped the bottom of the barrel and found an overseas company with, that was already on human rights watch lists, that already had an environmental record that meant they couldn't sell their timber into um, some of the Japanese markets. And we offered them money to come here. And then what we did um, was we allowed them to combine the timber from the mills in Tasmania with the timber from the rainforest in Sarawak. And because it was a combination, we allowed them to put an Australian forestry standard, the dodgy Mm. government business as usual standard. We allowed them to put that standard on the timber so they could sell it into those Japanese markets. We were greenwashing... Human rights abuses and and incredibly um, toxic environmental practices overseas and here,
0: it it's horrific. And and anyone listening to this, it just it can't even fathom how this happens. I guess the the line that people toe or the justification that people make is that this industry provides much needed jobs to the region and economic stability. Um, but that may not be the case either. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the actual um, what the the native logging industry actually contributes to the Tasmanian economy?
3: Well, the natives' forest sector, their biggest contribution is debt. And so <laughs> we are we are seeing um, this industry makes a huge loss to the taxpayer. Taran and the the. Wood chip mills uh, are doing great out of this. Um, we are effectively cutting down these forests at a loss to the taxpayer and then selling them at less than the cost of harvesting to these companies. And so they are going out, yes, they're providing jobs and they're, they're um, generating profits for themselves, but only at the, the fact that we're prepared to wear the loss. And so on average, Um, It varies year by year and, and they use various accounting measures to try and hide those losses, but when you cut it down to what did it cost to cut the trees down and then how much did you get when you sold them, Forestry Tasmania or Sustainable Timbers Tasmania as they like to call themselves, I'm making around a $75 million loss every year. And then on top of that, we've got direct grants to the industry, we've got subsidies for freight, we've got a whole lot of other subsidy programs that support the industry. And so in effect, what we're doing is we're, we're pouring about $100,000 of public money into underwriting every $65,000 job. Mm-hmm. And so the reality here is that if it was purely a jobs argument, we're already paying more than the wage. Mm. We could have these people doing anything else that the community requires. We could have them restoring um, previously logged areas. There's a whole range of opportunities. Um, But this is clearly not really a jobs argument. This is about companies who've got some political sway um, in that native forest sector, who are able to influence government and get their way mm. um, at a time when we have a hospitals crisis we've got a health crisis um, we've got a homelessness crisis, and here we are pouring you know millions of dollars into underwriting the logging of forests that the majority of the public don't want cut
0: It's devastating hearing that the companies have political power but they've also done an extremely good job of convincing the general public that this is needed, right? And that has a... I was fascinated to hear the the battleground politically that the couple of seats in this region have on both a state and a federal level. Um, can you explain a bit about that situation and how this really, this whole campaign um, is right at the centre of basically, who becomes Prime Minister.
3: Yeah, look, we, we uh, they, they say, don't they, that all politics is local, and it's certainly true for <laughs> us here in <laughs> northwest Tasmania. And so we're sitting... The Tarkine sits in the seat of Braddon. Um, on election night, you'll always hear Braddon pulled up as which way is it going, and it's a good indication of who will be the government. Um, it's one of those bellwether seats. It's a very marginal seat. It changes hands quite um, often. Um, within Braddon when things are so tight, um, we find that uh, the little community of Smithton in far northwest is a timber town. It's got two native forest mills. It doesn't have a plantation-based processor in the town. And so its voters uh, are very worried about what happens to the timber mills in those towns. And, And they're not, of course, looking at what they could do instead or anything else. They know, this is what we do, this is how we've always done it, and and we're scared of what happens if we lose it. And so you can understand that they're going to vote on that issue. Mm. Um, but what we see, unfortunately, is that rather than presenting to them a different future and a pathway towards it, Labor and Liberal governments are both taking the easy path. They're going to those communities and saying, we will defend your... Your um, wood supply. We will make sure that native forest logging continues in this area, and you keep your job. And so, what we see is that um, whoever makes the most convincing case carries the vote in Smithton, and carrying the vote in Smithton, even by two, three hundred votes, can can be the difference between you winning that seat or not. Um, in the last federal election, while we all blamed Queensland for the result, the reality was. We lost two seats in northern Tasmania, both in, in marginal timber industry-dominated seats. And so um, the Morrison government is in government today by a two-seat majority, and mm. they they can be tagged back to Bass and Braden in northern Tasmania. Um, in a state election, it's a very similar scenario, where we have um, our federal electorate boundaries match our state electoral boundaries, and we elect five members per seat, and so that final seat in Braddon in a state election is often decided on which way the timber workers in Smithton vote, whether they back Labor's policy or Liberal's policy mm. for logging our native forest. And it's not a question of do we log it or not It's about which party do they trust more to make sure we log it. And so what we have is both of those parties beating their chest to make sure that they win those seats because it can win your federal government, but generally if you win the fifth seat in Braddon, you're going to win the state election. And so it's, um, you know, the needs of the rest of the state or the desires of us to protect our forests or or the amount of money that's being wasted um, unnecessarily on this industry becomes casualties to the fact that if we do this as we've always done it, we'll win that seat, we stay in government.
2: Mm.
0: Wow. Wow. It's amazing. It's, It's amazing to understand not just what's happening here in the forest, but the impact it has environmentally and politically um on our on our country and the world and i could do a whole another episode speaking to you about all of the kind of campaign strategies the tactics that you guys employ but i don't want to do that because i don't want to spill the beans (laughs) um but i guess if we can leave the listeners with one thing it's um i mean you guys and the bob brown foundation are doing amazing work in stopping or delaying activity as much as possible, which is vitally important. And I, I think I heard you say that, um, was it in the last five years, you've saved hectares, hectares and hectares from yeah, being destroyed? Yeah, pro- probably
3: thousands of hectares of log- coops that were scheduled for logging mm. that that have been either taken off the schedule or we have stood in the way and prevented them logging. And so it, it's very... Um, Sort of hard campaign to run. You you're in an area that isn't always too supportive of of mm. standing up for native forests, and it's an area that, um, you know, the weather is pretty brutal, particularly in the colder months through through Western oh, yeah. Tasmania. But but it's a beautiful area. It's a great place to stand in defence of those forests, and we've had a huge amount of volunteers who've come to join us and and what we're doing works and so when you, when you see the results coming in and you know that those forests are standing because of the action you took it's hard to to not step up on the next one.
0: Totally. And and it's amazing and the the stuff that you're doing on the ground is incredible. Um and I also love that the foundation has this longer term play and understands The politics and the dynamics around how we can prevent this from happening again in the future and so I guess if you can leave the listeners with a bit of advice as what they can do because probably a lot of people hear this and care about these forests but they think oh I'm not in Tassie I'm not there on the ground so it's not really my fight but what can they do if they want to support
3: well, definitely people can get onto the Bob Brown Foundation website. They can get onto our Facebook um, page and they can follow the campaigns and there'll periodically be calls to action where we need people to write to a particular minister or we need people to to send a message to a company or whatever it is. And those things happen very quickly at times and so being engaged on those websites means that you can take action when, when we, we call upon you. But the other thing people can do, of course, is is go and sit down with your local member. Um, Your federal member of parliament works for you. They're your representative. And so um, if you go and meet with them, sit down with them, tell them that this area is a beautiful part of the planet, that habitat for a native species is important to you. You don't want to see these areas logged. And when they get up and speak in the parliament in your name, you want them to be telling the world that this has to stop and and that's very powerful um, a lot of people are, are afraid of doing it because they feel they don't know enough about the industry, they don't know enough about the, the politics, they don't know the science, but it doesn't have to be about that, it can be about oh, I am an elector in your your seat and you as my representative um, are responsible for, for carrying my hopes and views into the parliament and, and so don't ever be afraid to do that and and keep going and doing it. If they don't don't respond, turn up again. Tell all your friends to turn up. Keep turning up. And build that pressure. And so when um, folk in seats around the country start seeing that their political future is tied to their um, action on the Tarcoin, then we'll get to a situation where what happens in a little seat in northwest Tasmania doesn't determine the fate of this place, that people around the country are standing up and their local MPs are having to stand up with them. Mm. And so we we really need people all across Australia to be standing up and protecting. These are national heritage value-worthy forests and they've been assessed as having world heritage values and so they don't just belong to those of us that live here. They belong to the rest of the world and, and we need everybody to be standing up.
0: Mm. And this is a model that's worked before. I mean, Bob even says it himself that it wasn't until the the people of the mainland with the Franklin fight really understood and got on board with it that that's what saved it. So, I love that you've got this th- this direct action model, but then also this um, this lobbying and this this uh, political model to protect these areas in the longer term, and. Um, I think we've had the dinner call, so I don't want to keep you from from dinner at the camp, Scott, but I just want to say um, thank you so much for the day today and everything you've done for me in this campaign and, and sitting down on this podcast, but on a much deeper level from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for all the work that you've done. You've committed a lifetime to this sort of work, and I can tell how much you and all the team put into it, and it's really amazing to know that there are people like you out there doing this sort of work, so thank you.
1: Thank you.